reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. I entered religious life when I was uh, 23 years old, um, shortly after graduating college. So I graduated in, in May of that year, and then for us, we begin on our lady's birthday, September 8th. So people always ask me, what did I do before I joined the Friars? And I always said, nothing, really. <laughs> so right after college, for the most part, uh, I entered in religious life, and at least from my background, I came from a, a very loving family. Couldn't be any more supportive. I came from a, a very supportive parish. And I probably had the most enthusiastic pastor I could, even, I could never even imagine. He, he was more enthusiastic about my vocation than I think I was. Just an absolutely wonderful, wonderful man and a wonderful priest. And so when I moved to New York City to join the Friars, I thought that support would just simply follow me. In fact, I couldn't imagine life without the support. I heard some horror, horror stories from some of my classmates about one of them, their family, literally disowned them. And I, I just couldn't even fathom how that could occur. I was sheltered for the most part, thank God. Um, I couldn't conceive that life with God would really include things like sufferings or persecutions. I mean, I knew obviously that it was there, but it wasn't really my experience up until then. And in my uh, first week as a novice, we were invested um, on a Saturday morning and the following week, it was Monday evening, one of the brothers and I uh, decided we were just going to go out for a walk at night. And so I was living in Harlem, and our friary there is between uh, Broadway and Amsterdam. So it's on 150, 142nd Street. And so obviously there's a lot going on in, the, in that area. And so we're walking, uh, this other brother and I, and we're just simply talking. You know, there's thousands of people all over the place. And I just happen to look forward, and I see maybe like a couple hundred feet away, I see this woman who is like, has this intense look at us. Like she, she looks like she has evil in her eyes. And so I just like noticed her, and I just went back to talking to the brother. And I looked again, and she was getting very close, and she was still looking at us. And as soon as, maybe as close as Sister Lucy is to me, she walks right up to me and spits in my face. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
She didn't say anything. She just spit right in my face. And she just kept on walking. And the other brother and I uh, just stopped. And for like 20 seconds, I, we were just like shocked. I couldn't believe what had just happened. And after about 20 seconds, we look at each other. And we both start laughing so hard. I mean, we already look crazy just the way we're dressed. But we were literally having like a laughing breakdown in the middle of Broadway. We were just laughing uh, so hard. And after about a minute of laughing and I wiped the spit off my face, I said to him, let's just go back to the friary. What do you think? <laughs> and, uh, and he agreed. And then... Um, the rest of the week was pretty calm, but then <laughs> following Saturday, so now is a full week of being invested, every Saturday we would <clears throat> pray and counsel outside of abortion clinics. Um, we were trained to be actually <clears throat> sidewalk counselors. And so there would be like maybe two or three of us counseling, and then the other, other, all of us would be on the other side of the street praying. And <clears throat> this one morning, I'm at the end of our line, and so there's maybe like 20 of us praying right in front of me is a fire hydrant and probably about midway through the morning a young man comes out of the abortion clinic he had just walked in there with i'm guessing his girlfriend and <clears throat> he came out and he just looked at us and he walked across the street and he was just sort of like hanging around maybe about like 30 feet uh, on the side of me and he was drinking uh, a snapple like bottle snapple iced tea and so he finishes his, his drink and he comes over and he takes the bottle and he looks at me and he slams it right in the fire hydrant that's in front of me. And all this glass just shatters all around me. This time I didn't laugh. <laughs> but we all were just like, and he, he uh, just said some very unkind words, which uh, I won't repeat here. Um, but for, this one took me a little longer to recover from maybe about two years later when I recovered. <laughs> um, but just all this glass was nothing, like nothing, nothing hit my uh, face or anything like that. But obviously it was still a little bit shocking. And um, <clears throat> after that incident, I remember being back at the friary and thinking also about this lady who had just spit on me. I remember sitting in my cell and thinking, why didn't these people like me? <laughs> like, I never hurt anyone in my life. I'm a pretty nice guy. I didn't say anything offensive. I was just there. It was just my presence. <clears throat> and I didn't even know these people. And uh, f just for the next few days, it sort of, it really bothered me. But then later on in that week at Mass, I heard Jesus say in the Gospel of St. John these words, If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the, lo the world would love its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And when I heard those words that morning at Mass, obviously I had heard those words before, but given my recent experience, I realized more deeply what was happening. That I really now no longer belonged to the world. I had the exterior sign to, to prove that. And that when these people saw me, 
in my religious habit, praying or just simply walking, it was Jesus that they were spitting on. That it was Jesus they were trying to intimidate. And ultimately it was Jesus who they hated. For the simple reason, it couldn't be me since they didn't even know me. But yet, the religious habit speaks volumes. And in those experiences, I realized that I was being invited to experience the persecution and the suffering that Jesus would endure. Really, his whole life. Regarding this flight into Egypt of the Holy Family, the Catechism says that the flight into Egypt manifests the opposition of darkness to the light. And it says that Christ's whole life was lived under the sign of persecution. His own share it with him. really powerful line. His own share it with him. It's a reminder that persecution to at least some degree is the normal experience of a disciple of Christ. Jesus himself says that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And, you know, long before you or I or any of of the martyrs experienced persecution for Christ, Mary is the first one to share in this opposition to the light. She is the first to experience persecution for the sake of Christ. Herod, because he is after Christ, is after Mary. And obviously Joseph as well. Because, as we have reflected on already, wherever he is, she is. Herod is intimidated. He is scared of the possibility of a newborn king being born. And so he has to go after everyone who's closest to him. And who's the most closest to him but Our Lady. Which, just as a sort of side note, is such a perfect icon of discipleship. That wherever he is, we would be and should be. Up until this point in Our Lady's life, as we've been reflecting on these days, we have witnessed Mary marveling at the presence of her son marveling at the ways in which 
He has been made known to her. Through the angel Gabriel, through her cousin Elizabeth, by arriving in Bethlehem through all the mysterious uh, providential signs that God has allowed, through the shepherds and the magi. And in all these experiences, there's been a, a deeply receptive and contemplative experience of God for Mary. But now, in the flight into Egypt, her posture moves from receiving him to protecting him. And this protecting him is going to cost her and Joseph a lot. The journey to Egypt, just a little geography for you, the journey to Egypt from where they are is about 400 miles. It's winter time. So it's most likely that they would experience winter weather, things like rain and, and wind and snow. Mary is 15 years old, right? a delicate young woman who's obviously not accustomed to such journeys. And to get from Egypt to Bethlehem, there were only two possible routes. One of those routes would take Joseph and Mary along uh, the sand dunes of the Mediterranean coast to Egypt. And another route would take them across the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula to the sea coast into the delta. Now, to us modern people, that sounds exciting. That sounds adventurous. Of course, we imagine ourselves on a pilgrimage with a tour guide and lots of water and food and friends. But to Joseph and Mary, it wasn't adventurous and it wasn't exciting. Whichever way they ended up going, and obviously we don't know the exact way, was extremely laborious. It would take about two or three weeks of exhausting travel. They would be fortunate if, and the big word here is if, they had a donkey or a camel on which Mary and the child could ride, at least at intervals. So what is being asked of Mary here? And what is being asked of us in times of persecution? And honestly, we don't even have to limit this to just persecution. But what is being asked of us in times of suffering, in times of confusion, or just the overall difficulties of life. 
What is being asked of Mary here is what is always being asked of us. And that is a deeper gift of self. Throughout the centuries, many spiritual writers have attempted to describe our relationship with God as moving through a, a series of stages. Right? Dionysus in the 5th century was the first person to really uh, organize the spiritual life into three, into three stages, the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive way. Probably it's the most common, the most famous model that we're aware of, of a way of understanding our, our journey with God. St. Teresa of Avila described the soul as a castle with Jesus at the center. But to get to the center of that castle, we have to go through various rooms and various dwelling places. St. John of the Cross described the spiritual journey as ascending a mountain, Mount Carmel, and that as we progress higher and higher and higher up this mountain, we become more purified, more able to see God more clearly. And what all of these writers are attempting to remind us of is that holiness is an ongoing journey outwards. Farther and farther away from self. And what do I mean by self? I mean, I don't mean our, our very being, but the self as somebody who thinks that we are who we think we are, or that we are just our culture, or we are just our family, or we are just our age or ethnicity. Our self is basically the self that's just rooted in this world. Holy, the journey of holiness takes us further and further away from that, from what I understand, from what I find comfortable, from what I think and what I feel, and from what I want simply with my own humanity. Holiness then is really this moving away from myself as the reference point for everything. This is why St. John of the Cross refers to growth in holiness and purification as a dark night. Because the further we travel away from self and all of its limited perceptions, its understandings, its feelings and its desires, we enter more deeply into the mystery, the transcendence, 
and the incomprehensibility of God. Which at first is like a dark night. Because it is completely new territory and a completely new way of relating to God and God relating to us. This transitional stage is, at least in my opinion, the most important stage of our relationship with God. It's almost like all of a sudden we are in a, a room with all the lights on, and then in, a, in just in a moment, all of the lights are out, and we no longer know where we are or where we're going. Now, how can that be good? How can that be important? Because God does that so that we are forced to lean more deeply into faith, into hope, and into love. I can't really say I have faith if I can see everything clearly, if everything makes sense to me. I can't say that I really have love when I get along with everybody, when I'm naturally attracted to people around me. And the same with hope. But when the lights go out, this is God's mercy in our life. And so, what is necessary then, at least on our end, to move more deeply into the mystery of God? It's not necessarily more prayer, more penance, more work. It certainly can include all of those things. But fundamentally, it is a deeper gift of self. Jesus says the same thing. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now I realize this, is, this can be terrifying for us and even paralyzing. Because here's another fact about our journey with God. Every step that we take deeper with God is a step into the unknown. In this next step in our relationship with God, we don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know what it's going to be like. We don't know what I'm going to look like or be like. We don't know how I'm going to feel. How other people will respond or react. Our senses, which 
for many things in life help us are now, for the most part, completely useless when it comes to growing in intimacy with God. And the simple reason for that is that God is much bigger than our senses. He is much greater than what our sense perception can grasp. St. John of the Cross says that the soul is not united with God in this life through understanding, through enjoyment, through the imagination, or through any other sense, but only faith, hope, and charity can unite the soul with God in this life. And I think usually when, at least for most of us, when we hear about our greater gift of self or greater generosity, we almost always associate this with more work. And when we hear this, sometimes we think, oh my goodness, I have to do more work. I have to work harder, work harder. Sometimes a greater gift of self results in more work, which is a secondary cause. But always, 100% of the time, a greater gift of self is about being more and not doing more. In Mary's flight into Egypt, what work is God calling Mary to? Yes, she is instructed to take the child and flee to Egypt. But in order to do that, before she can even say yes to that action or to that work, she first has to say yes to the invitation to a greater trust, to a greater surrender, and to a greater obedience. And it is that yes which will give the strength and provide the grace for the work that needs to be accomplished. In this deeper gift of self, what we are really talking about are interior qualities and interior dispositions that, of course, entail some activity, but is primarily an interior opening, a deep interior yes to God. This is why St. Augustine says about Mary that Mary had already conceived Jesus in faith 
before the angel Gabriel came to her. She was already interiorly open to the promptings, to the presence of God. And so a deeper gift of self is first and foremost a deeper opening of our whole self to God that begins interiorly but then manifests itself exteriorly. This is why work or or ministry without the proper interior depth or disposition, almost always leads to burnout and to disaster. I remember being a postulant and hearing about priests and religious experiencing burnout. I used to think to myself, how is that great? How is that possible? How could you honestly be burned out by doing God's work? Well, it didn't take me very long to realize how quickly and how possible that is. But we experience burnout not because we are doing too much, but because we are receiving too little. Because we're not open enough to the presence of God. And what happens here in burnout or when ministry and work just becomes about doing more? Things like pride, competition, jealousy, my own ego becomes the focus. Now these things will always be present to some degree. However, without this movement of a deeper gift of self occurring, ministry will only remain social work. Social work is important and necessary, but social work is concerned about the person in this world, which we are too. But then there's the other dimension that we are concerned about the eternity of this other person. This deeper gift of self is yet another theme that we'll see, or that we see, throughout the life of Mary. Beginning, of course, at the Annunciation and leading all the way up to the cross and beyond. Mary holds nothing back from God. This is why we need her to help us, to assist us with our own deeper gift of self, which God is calling all of us to. Yes, in times of persecution, in times of suffering, but really throughout all of life. 
And again, just my own opinion here, but I'm of the opinion that we cannot do this without her. And that God does not want us to do this without her. Now, I spent the first, I would say, 10 years of my religious life trying to follow Christ by myself with what I would describe as just simply a basic love and devotion for Mary. But in that, in that time, and also I was all obviously younger, even though my desire for God was sincere, <clears throat> what I was also concerned about was acquiring spiritual knowledge or spiritual experience. And once I gave myself more fully to Mary, I became more concerned about giving everything away and not acquiring anything. A tremendous grace in my life that I can only attribute to Mary. Our Lady says to St. Juan Diego, who, in the apparitions at Guadalupe, this poor little peasant, St. Juan Diego, is being asked to make a tremendous gift of self. And he, like all of us, is frightened when that is asked of us. And what does Mary say to him? She says, I am your merciful mother. Do not be troubled. Am I not here who am your mother? Are you not under my shadow and protection? Are you not in the folds of my mantle? Is there anything else you need? The answer, of course, is no. Mary will help us give ourselves more deeply to God. And in reality, this shouldn't surprise us or even shock us. Because in many ways, this is simply the natural fruit of being with her who gave herself continually to God each day. Amen.